We'll be reading this morning from Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe to me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in a semester-long series entitled Adjusting Our Focus, and we broke it down into, broken it down into several mini-series. The one we're in right now is only two parts. The mini-series is about adjusting our focus on grace. Last week, as you know, Dan spoke about grace and applied it to our lives, the importance of grace and acknowledging that grace. Today, I take another step with the topic of grace and basically say what we have received, we must give. If we've received grace, we must extend grace to others. And this passage, among a couple others, uh, are passages that I want to explore that principle with. So just a little bit about this particular parable. Sometimes we're unsure about whether or not the parables of Jesus were real-life situations, right? Real people in real time. But for the most part, we think they were not. They were stories that Jesus told. And it's pretty clear from this story that it is a story, but not necessarily a story with particular individuals, particular kings, particular numbers in it. And one of the reasons we think that is because of the outrageous nature of the debt that was owed to the king. So, for instance, to put this in context, according to this story, the debt that the servant owed to the king was in modern-day dollars something like $2.5 billion. Okay? That's extreme. Extreme to make a point. The point is, nobody can pay that debt. You can't do it. Especially not a normal person, which was what the servant was. By contrast, you have a different figure. 
if you translate it into modern cash, the servant had someone else who owed him $400,000. That's a trick. It wasn't even that much. This servant had a debtor who only owed him $4,000. $4,000, $2.5 billion. And the king said to the one who owed $2.5 billion, it's okay, I forgive you. The one who was owed only 4000 grabbed his person who owed him the money by the neck and said, pay up. If not, I'm going to throw you in debtor's prison. By the way, that was a very common thing to do back then. If you couldn't pay, you were thrown into debtor's prison. In particular cultures, not the Jewish culture, because the Jewish culture prohibited, at least according to the law, that women could be enslaved for debt. So it would have just been the husband and perhaps the sons. But in this case, Jesus is speaking broadly in a parable, and there are cultural examples of where people like this, their entire family would go into slavery. So a number of years ago, I had the privilege of visiting one of our missionaries in Pakistan, and um, at the time, that missionary was um, a professor at a university. And I was invited to go there on two different occasions to contribute um, to the teaching schedule for two weeks at a time, or 10 days, I think it was. On both occasions, I would walk to class from this person's house where I was staying. And most days, I would walk past something that kind of took me back. What I walked past was... I don't even want to call it a shanty town because that elevates it. It was like tarps with sticks. And there were people sitting under the tarps with sticks, mostly on the ground. I didn't know for sure what it was, but I found out from my host what it was. These people were in debtor prison. Now, of course, it wasn't a prison with walls, a prison with iron gates. It was servitude. These people had no way to pay their debt. So the way they could be free is to work for the master in a brick kiln day after day after day, 12 to 14 hours a day in hopes of paying off their debt. You know what the reality was? Most of those people could never pay off their debt. And the reason is because the corrupt businessman would manipulate the amount that they owed and continue to change it based on interest or some other ambiguous category. So they could never do anything but be an indentured servant. About a year or so after we returned, I returned from that trip. We were in contact with our missionary concerning some people at the university who were servants at the university and their family had fallen into servitude, prisoner debt. And our missionary asked us, do you think there's any way that you can make a contribution so we can buy these people out of slavery? Well, you can imagine what the missions committee's response was, how fast can we get you the money? right? We wanted to do our best to buy them back. And we did. 
Some of you made contributions to that, and the missions committee took care of the rest. And we bought them from slavery. So that's the picture that Jesus is painting. He's painting a picture of a guy who could never get out of debt, $2.5 billion, who, when forgiven, refuses to extend the same grace to his fellow servant. That's the backdrop of what had preceded a question by Peter. Peter had said to Jesus in this long conversation, Lord, how many times should I forgive? How about seven times? Now, to give Peter credit, he was really thinking he was great by saying, forgive seven times. Why? Because the standard was much lower. Peter's standard was really generous. Here, if we have that slide up there, I want to show you what the standard was. This is rabbinic teaching concerning forgiveness. If a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time, he's forgiven. Only three strikes, and you're out. But the fourth time, he's not. You can see why Peter thought himself very generous. Lord, should I forgive seven times? This next slide shows another iteration of the same principle. If a man said, I will sin and repent, and sin again and repent, he will be given no chance to repent. One strike and you're out. That's why Peter said, seven times? That's great, isn't it, Lord? And Jesus said to him, you have no idea, 70 times seven, which in effect means 2.5 billion. In other words, forgive, no matter what. It must have rocked Peter to his heels, and there's a good reason for that. Because as some scholars suggest, and I believe they're right, after trying to find it myself, I know this to be true. In the Old Testament, from which Peter was speaking, in the Old Testament, forgiveness was the exclusive responsibility and action of God. People could not forgive sins. That's why Jesus, when he said, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic, said something that was controversial and stunning. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. But there's something else that is in the Old Testament in a way and certainly part of the rabbinic teaching. Human beings are not commanded in the Old Testament to forgive God does the forgiving. Moses, David, and the prophets don't seem to instruct us to forgive. Now, if that interpretation is correct, you can see how absolutely revolutionary Jesus' teaching is. As the Jewish rabbi in Palestine, he steps into the tradition and says, A new age is dawn. And that new age is me. And I want to tell you what real forgiveness looks like. Forgive, forgive, 
and forgive again. Jesus' idea is revolutionary. And I would like to make such a bold statement as to say it changed the world. People started to think about forgiveness in a way they never had before. Now this passage, this parable, primarily is addressing sins committed against you, right? This is very personal. I have a debt, he forgave it. You have a debt, I'm not going to forgive it. But there are other passages that speak concerning grace, mercy, and forgiveness that give us a little different understanding of the notion. And one of them comes to us in John chapter 8, where the woman is caught in adultery. You remember that story. She's caught in adultery, and she's brought in before the leaders of the high court, let's call them, the teachers of the law. And they say, to Jesus, this woman committed adultery, and according to the law of Moses, she must be executed. And Jesus, of course, engaged them in a most unusual way. But first of all, what they were trying to do was two things. One, they were trying to stump Jesus. That's what they were always up to. And number two, this is Bob speaking, they were condemning the sin that they thought the worst. They looked at her and they said, she sinned. Now what do you do, Jesus? Of course, you know the story. Jesus stoops and starts to write in the ground. He stands up and one by one, the accusers have walked away. And he says to the woman, ma'am, where are your accusers? And he said, they're gone. She said, they're gone. Who are those who condemn you is actually the language and says, nobody's here to condemn me. And he said, well, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. You know what that reflected? It reflected something that happened early in the book of John. John chapter 3, verse 16, 17. Jesus came into the world, he says, not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. I'm not here to condemn, says Jesus. I'm here to forgive. Your sin condemned you already. You know your sin. What I offer is forgiveness for that sin. Now, now, let's not rush to the conclusion that there is no such thing as judgment. We know there is judgment, and we know that Jesus will be a part of end-time judgment. But as it relates to this particular time where the good news is revealed, Jesus says, in effect, that's not my job. I'm not condemning. I'm forgiving. Don't forget it. There's a third passage I want to mention that has to do with grace and mercy and forgiveness. It's uh, Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. In this situation, we have a son who leaves the father's house and lives, as the old King James Version says, riotously. (laughs) Just does everything and spends all these inheritance and then comes back on hands and knees begging to at least be a servant in his father's house because he says, I'm not even worthy to be a son anymore. And his father, of course, welcomes him in and throws a party and 
they have a, a feast with the fatted calf, and, and then, of course, you know the other part of the story. It's the elder brother who says, are you kidding me? Why? I've been here all along. I've never left. I've always been faithful, and you're throwing him a party? What is this all about? It's very simple. I'll tell you, it's very simple. It's one word. Grace. That's what it is. The father in the parable could have just turned to him and said, grace. And you don't understand it, son. You don't get it. He might have extended the parable and the father might have said to the son, do you never remember a time in your life where you were forgiven? Do you never remember a time in your life that you didn't get what you deserve? Think about it, my son. Of course, that's not in the parable. I'm just suggesting it could be. I, I read someone this week who made this comment, and I, maybe this is splitting hairs, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. He said this. He said, mercy is not giving a person what he or she deserves. That's mercy. Not giving them what they deserve. But grace, he said, grace is giving what the person does not deserve. In other words, mercy is saying you're forgiven. Grace is saying, son, you're forgiven for using all the money I gave you on all kinds of sinful activities. And furthermore, come on back home. You're still part of the family. So what does grace mean? It means when we're deplorable sinners, God says, not only are you forgiven, now you're mine. Welcome to the family. That's grace. Now, there's some challenges, and you know I try not to avoid challenges um, in Matthew 18. And the challenge that most of you have already seen down near the end is this challenge. If you don't forgive the way this parable is teaching, if you don't forgive, if you're the guy who grabs your fellow servant by the throat, if you don't forgive, my Father in heaven is not going to forgive you. Now, if that doesn't blow you back on your heels, I'm not sure whether you're listening or you're just ignoring it, right? So let me go back to the notion of a parable for a moment, okay? Parables are, for the most part, fictional stories to emphasize a key point or points, not every point of the parable should be used as a theological category. The main point should be. That should give you a little bit of relief. You don't have to apply every element of the parable as the issue at hand. Every element of the story is not an exact parable uh, parallel to life. 
if, if we were to take this very, very literally and hardcore, here's what it would turn into. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. It would turn into us earning forgiveness, right? You got to be perfect in your forgiveness and then you'll get it from God. So I earn my forgiveness. Now, where's grace in that equation? It's not there at all because you're earning it. So surely it can't mean that. Um, it also appears that if you don't forgive your brother, you won't be forgiven. And if that is true, I might as well just fold my cards and walk away. And you too, right? Have you ever experienced a lack of forgiveness? How many times has your forgiveness been in jeopardy because you haven't forgiven others? You know it's happened over and over again. Would any of us ever pass this test if it was a hardcore test? I think the answer is no. And as a matter of fact, if you place this as a hardcore test, it seems like it goes contrary to the teachings of Jesus which suggests radical grace. So what does the teaching suggest? The last part of the parable. Here's a suggested interpretation. Maybe it goes something like this. I tell you this story so that you don't live in unforgiveness, but instead you follow my example. I don't tell you this story because I think you will always perfectly forgive and if you don't, you're in danger of hellfire until you repent of your unforgiveness. What I want you to do is look at what I've done for you and what my mission in the world is and I want you not to live in unforgiveness and to follow my example. The teaching might also be something like this. If you refuse to forgive, that's a clear, under, uh, in, a clear indication that you don't understand forgiveness to begin with. If you refuse to forgive, you don't even get it. So don't enter into the world of unforgiveness. Another possible interpretation is the proof of your understanding of forgiveness is your willingness to forgive. Or perhaps Jesus is saying, which is routinely true, God's punishment is not a sledgehammer in every situation. Sometimes God's punishment is that he turned you over to yourself. So, Don't refuse to forgive because if you do, you'll live in the prison of your own unforgiveness and that is hell. So forgive. Um, I, I end with what I hope is the hopeful part of this, this sermon, um,
there is blessing in extending grace and forgiveness. Because when we release our right to hold the grudge, or however you want to put it, and we turn it over to God, we give it to a God who is absolutely just and absolutely perfect and makes the right decisions, or to put it in the words of Scripture itself, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let me handle it, will you? Will you let go of it and let me handle it? Do you think you could do it better than me when you clinch it? Do you think I can't do a good job of it if you release it? Well, you know the rhetorical answer to that question. Of course you can do a good job. Of course you'll handle it, so let's release it and let God take care of it. So first, a blessing of forgiveness and grace is we release it. We let God take care of it. A second blessing of forgiveness and grace is that it breaks the cycle of bitterness that enslaves us. Don't fool yourself. Unforgiveness makes you a slave. It's a cycle of bitterness that runs over and over in your heart and mind and destroys you. The blessing of forgiveness is you're released from that enslavement. Uh, The third thing is kind of the second part of being released. It produces freedom in the one who forgives. You remember the famous um, musical of Victor Hugo, Les Mis. In that story, Jean Valjean, who spent quite a lot of time in prison was actually, ironically, not the prisoner. The prisoner was on the outside of the bars. It was Javert. And he was imprisoned by judgment and legalism and unforgiveness. He was the prisoner. So down near the end of that epic story, Javert says to Jean Valjean, I'm asking you to dismiss me. In other words, I'm asking you to condemn me. Jean Valjean looks at him and says, I command you to forgive yourself. In other words, I am. You forgive yourself. And then you'll be a prisoner a little longer. But of course, as you know, at the end of the story, he cannot free himself and he commits suicide. And he goes into this prison eternally. The fourth blessing of forgiveness is this. It's a blessing because unforgiveness is a toxin that affects you and those around you. When you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, it hampers the relationship with those that you love in your life. 
You think you could isolate it and quarantine it. It's about that bad guy over there. But no, somehow it affects you so deeply that it actually infringes on your relationship with people you love. It's a toxin in your system. And when you release it, it's like the purification of your system. You're released of the poison. And you experience the love and forgiveness of God. So, in conclusion, I want to apply all three of these stories to the idea of forgiveness. The servant, the woman, and the son. If you want to be free, if you want to experience freedom, you must admit your sinfulness and ask forgiveness. That's what two out of the three characters did. And then the second part of the application is this. Who have you not? This is a very introspective question. No answers except in your heart. Who have you not forgiven who has sinned against you? Do you have the name? Do you have the face? Maybe you have such a clear conscience you can't think of anybody. But who have you not forgiven that sinned against you? That's the first question. Second question is, what is your favorite sin to condemn? Everybody's got their pet sin to condemn. What's yours? Or what's your list? Uh, The third question is, why do you hate it so much? Just, Just because you're righteous? Or do you hate it so much because you're afraid of it? Or do you hate it so much because you're afraid of it for someone else? Or do you hate it so much because you think it could destroy somebody and you just hate it? Or... Do you hate it with pride? I'm not that bad, so I have the right to hate it and condemn it. A a last question is this. It's, again, an introspective one. Who's your favorite sinner? I don't mean that in terms of grace. I mean a person that you just despise. Who is it? I don't know. You may have a whole bunch of people in your mind by now <laughs> having been asked those questions. Um, but the answer for, for all of that is the same. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to extend the grace that has been extended to you. I was in um, an ACG this morning and um, something emerged that's the final point of my sermon. 
The only way forward in terms of forgiveness is humility. You have to look at the other with humility and say, I forgive you because I'm the same sinner that you are. So my challenge to you is to walk away today with the notion of forgiveness in your mind and the people who came to mind and exercise the grace that you've been given. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for grace. We, we know we're undeserving of it. We thank you for grace because we know that's the only way to forgiveness. We thank you for grace because it changed our life. But we don't want to be those people who keep grace, as Jesus said, concerning a light. We don't want to be those people who keep grace under a bushel and think it's for us and us alone because it destroys the whole idea of grace, Lord. We have been called by you and chosen by you and given grace in you so that we might extend the grace to others. So let us think about outreach and evangelism in this light. Not just telling people about the good news of Jesus, but being the good news of Jesus through grace and forgiveness. In your name we pray. Amen.